All right, if you'd stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week in uh, verse 20 of Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue on in the amazing transformation of Paul through the grace of God. Um, If you don't have a Bible, um, there's a Bible in front of you in the Pew Bible, and you can find uh, this passage on the page number on the screen. So please follow along. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? Has he not come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength and and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ." Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plots became known to Paul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And then Saul came to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed amongst the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarshish. Then the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now as a church, and I want to thank you for this image and this uh, example of Paul, God, and how no one is beyond saving and no one is beyond the great gifts of God. And I thank you and I pray that um, the Holy Spirit would come, come amongst us today and implore our hearts to change. And I thank you for your great grace. In your name, amen. Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we let them hear. Because the gospel... It's the power of God into salvation. This morning, what I want to share with us is that by the grace of God, we have been chosen, we have been saved to let them hear. You know, it's a, to be chosen is a wonderful feeling, is it not? It's a wonderful feeling to be chosen. And it's a miserable feeling not to be chosen. Uh, this, this reality became very real to me for the first time in my life, probably when I was in the ninth grade. And uh, as most of you know, I, I'm a basketball junkie. I love to play basketball, love to watch basketball. And in the ninth grade, having only played a very limited amount of basketball, organized basketball, I went out for our basketball team at school, and I tried out. And it was a three-day tryout. And at the end of that tryout, they post the team, you know, on the, on the door of the coach there. And, and that morning, where everybody's running to the door to see, find their name. 
And like all this, because I'm looking to find mine, and my name is nowhere to be seen. I didn't make the team. I did not get chosen as one of the best players in our school to make the basketball team. I was devastated. I'd never not been chosen for a sports team before in my life. And so I was devastated that I had not been chosen. But then something happened over the summer that literally changed everything. The basketball gods just kind of seemed to smile down upon me, and I grew almost six inches over the summertime. So then my sophomore year, when I went out for the basketball team again, I made the team. I was tall. <laughs> couldn't dribble, couldn't shoot, couldn't pass, but I was tall. They needed somebody to rebound the basketball, so I got to make the team. I was chosen, and it was a glorious, wonderful feeling. But that was nothing compared to the day my wife said yes and chose me to marry her. That was beautiful, Darla. Thank you for choosing me on that. We all know what it's like to be chosen. And we all know what it's like not to be chosen by people. But what I want us to see this morning is that we are chosen by God for a purpose. We're chosen for a purpose. Look at this in your notes if you want to follow along. Coming up on the screen here. We are, cho we are God's chosen vessels for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. We are God's chosen vessels. You say, well, well, Bruce, how do you know you're chosen by God? Well, because I know Jesus as my Savior, and I follow Him as my Lord. And the Bible says there's no way that I can do that apart from God's saving grace, apart from His grace of choosing me. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, I have no question that God chose me because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And maybe you're even asking, why would God choose me? When you look at your life, when you look at your past, when you look at your sinfulness, perhaps you think that in the simple reason is because God loves you. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And, and then Paul, he reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that all of this is by the grace of God. All of this is a gift from God when he says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and, and that not of yourselves. Why? It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So just think here with, a minute, with me for a minute. You are chosen by God as a believer in Jesus Christ. As a Christ follower here this morning, you are chosen by God. Let that sink in. Be amazed by God's grace in your life. You are chosen by God for a purpose. And, and what is that purpose? We are God's chosen vessels for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, we can go back to the first chapter of the book of Acts here, where Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and by application, He's speaking to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last Sunday, we learned that Saul's conversion to Jesus Christ 
was this, is a, a megaphone for God's mercy and grace for the world. And what makes Saul's conversion so remarkable is that he was the last person in the world that you would think God would save, and yet God saved him. God chose him. And in saving Saul, God shows us that no one is beyond the reach of God's amazing grace and mercy. If God can save Saul, then God can save anyone. But what we also see is that God saved Saul for a purpose. We looked at this verse briefly last Sunday, and it's a verse I want us to look at again today. If you back up in Acts chapter 9 from where Jeremy led us in our scripture reading to verse 15 and 16, it's the verse where the Lord comes to this disciple named Ananias in a vision or a dream, and he's speaking about Saul in particular to Ananias. And he tells Ananias in these verses, Go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine. And he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. There it is. Saul's purpose in life is to be a vessel that God will use to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And he will suffer in an extraordinary way for it. And we are chosen by God for the same purpose. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that God will use us in the exact same manner in which he used Saul. I mean, when's the last time anyone here has proclaimed the name of Jesus before kings? That's what Saul was chosen to do. And he did. You read through the end of Acts here, and Saul is standing before kings and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. But we are God's chosen vessels for the same purpose. And there is much that we can learn here this morning from Saul in this little passage here, these few verses here after his conversion in Acts 9. And so let me just draw out two applicational points for our lives here today to take away with us, to apply, and to hopefully gr let grip our hearts. Number one is we are chosen to proclaim the name of Jesus. We are chosen to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. This is so remarkable because before his conversion, Saul was literally on his way to Damascus to persecute those who claimed the name of Jesus. But after his conversion, he's now proclaiming the name of Jesus to others. Saul the persecutor is now Saul the proclaimer. And notice that he did not sit around very long after his conversion before he started proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 20. Luke writes, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. You know, Saul could have thought to himself, perhaps, well, you know, I'm kind of new at this. I just, I just recently got saved. God just saved me, changed me. And, you know, I better wait until I get it all together before I talk about Jesus. Saul maybe could have thought, I'm going to look like a fool. After all, everyone knows I came here to the city of Damascus to arrest Christians. And, and if I begin to proclaim Jesus now, man, they're going to think I'm crazy if they know that I'm now following Christ, the one I was now persecuting not too long ago. But Saul didn't make excuses. He just started to make Jesus famous, to make Jesus known. 
Saul gave no thought to how others viewed him. He didn't care about his own personal reputation. He was gripped by something far bigger than himself. He was gripped by something far bigger than those he was proclaiming to. Saul was gripped by the awesome reality of the one who chose him and saved him on the road to Damascus. And so, so what do we learn from this? Well, we learn, don't wait. We learn that every Christ follower should immediately begin proclaiming Jesus after their conversion to Jesus Christ. You may wonder, well, what do I say? Well, the answer is simple. Speak about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. Saul proclaimed Jesus Christ. He wasn't just talking about who he was now. He was talking about who Jesus is. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 through 6. This is the words of Paul. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can almost hear the echoes of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus in this last verse here. It's almost as if Saul is remembering the first time he encountered Jesus and how radically Jesus changed his life. And as you might imagine, Saul is persistent and he is passionate in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing that the last words we hear coming out of Saul's mouth before his conversion are, Lord, who are you? And the first words we hear coming out of his mouth after his conversion are, Jesus is the Son of God. No wonder the atmosphere in the synagogues there in Damascus, it must have been electric in addition to being quite shocking. Saul's reputation as a man opposed to Christ, remember we saw this last Sunday, it preceded him. Everyone knew why he was in Damascus. And now he's passionate about proclaiming Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 21 says, Then all who heard, what were they? Man, they're amazed. They're astonished. They are shocked. And said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul was persistent in proclaiming Jesus. In verse 22 it says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the promised one who came to die for our sins on the cross and resurrected three days later and is alive and able to save anyone who repents of their sin and calls out on the name of Jesus Christ. That is what he's persistent in proclaiming, passionate about proclaiming. In Saul's message about Jesus, it initially amazed the Jews here in Damascus. I mean... They perhaps even began to wonder, is this a case of mistaken identity here? I mean, who, who is this dude? But as Saul continued to proclaim Jesus, we also discovered they turned on him. In fact, we're told here in verses 23 through 24, look at it. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. 
when Saul went to Jerusalem, he met the same hostility. You look down in a few verses later here in verse 29, and it says, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord and disputed against the Hellenists. These were, were Greek-speaking Jews. But they attempted to do the same thing. They attempted to kill him. As one pastor put it, when you turn to Christ, don't expect applause from this world. Expect attacks. Don't expect cheering from the forces of hell. Expect challenges. And Saul was learning here in the early stages of his new life in Christ, he was learning the cost of following Jesus. His new life in Christ had barely begun, but already he's beginning to feel the heat when it comes to proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And here's the point I want us to see. Get ready. We need to get ready and we need to be prepared. You say, for what? To face opposition, to face rejection, when we proclaim the name of Jesus. Be prepared. Not all will welcome your message about Jesus, even though it means everything to you. Some people hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and it, it smells like life and hope to them, and they receive it. For others, the message of Jesus Christ smells like death. It's repulsive to them in their way of life, and they reject it. In fact, having learned this truth firsthand, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, he says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. So get ready. Get ready to face opposition and rejection when you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Saul was chosen, and yet he was opposed. People rejected his message. They questioned his motives, and they even tried to kill him. Probably the worst of this for Saul was that most of this came from his fellow religious Jews. They were supposed to listen to him. They were supposed to understand him. And they were supposed to believe in Jesus like he did. And yet they rejected Jesus and they rejected him. The Jews in Jerusalem, many people believe, were, were even the same part of the same crowd that had stoned Stephen earlier in the book of Acts. Saul had even held their coats the day that they stoned Stephen, killed him. And now Saul was proclaiming the very same message that Stephen did, and just as boldly as Stephen did. And now this crowd wanted to kill Saul just as they, just as they had killed Stephen. Even the church in Jerusalem didn't have Saul's back here in the beginning. Did you catch that in our scripture reading? Look what it says in verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there. That is the church at Jerusalem. But they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. In other words, they were still afraid of Saul. They were skeptical that his conversion to Christ was genuine, that it was real. They thought it was some sort of ruse to, for Saul to infiltrate the church so he could arrest more Christians. Thankfully, Barnabas comes on the scene. In fact, it's interesting, Barnabas' name literally means the son of encouragement, and he lives up to his name, and he comes alongside of Saul, and he vouches for Saul. 
So here's the question. Are you ready for this? Are you, are you ready to be criticized, even belittled, and even rejected for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ? And, and when it happens, here's the more important question for all of us here this morning. Will you keep proclaiming Him? Will you continue to let them hear? And notice, it's interesting how often the word boldly is used of Paul or Saul here in verses 27 through 29. Look at it, what it says. It says, he, that is Barnabas, declared to them how he, Saul, had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Saul was with them at Jerusalem coming in and out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's a question to think about. What if Saul had not continued to preach boldly about Jesus Christ? What if the fear of opposition, the fear of rejection, was, was too great for him to overcome, and he ceased? It silenced him. It muzzled him. It backed him into a corner. What if that had taken place? And we can only imagine but perhaps you and I would not even be sitting here today as Christ followers who have been saved by the amazing grace of God. So whose life is depending on you being bold about Jesus Christ? Who needs you to proclaim Jesus to them? And according to Acts 26, verse 18, in other words, who needs you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Listen, you and I, we have been chosen to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. That is what we've been chosen for. And so let us leave here today and let them hear the good news about Jesus Christ. But that brings us to another point here. We're not only chosen to proclaim, but when you look at the life of Saul, you begin to understand, and also through the New Testament scriptures, that we are chosen to suffer. We are chosen to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord says in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, look at it with me again. It says, go, for Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then verse 16 says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, let's just be honest here. Those two things don't seem to go together in our minds. Chosen to suffer. We're like, what's up with that? After all, suffering in, in our mindset, suffering is a bad deal. Suffering is what the enemy causes you. Or we think suffering is what happens when you do bad stuff and you bring it on yourself. And yet the Lord says, I will show Saul many things that he must suffer for my name's sake. Now let me tell you, Jesus, Jesus wasn't joking about that. 
As Saul followed Jesus as his Lord, let me tell you, his road was going to be paved with great suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's why Saul, later in the book of Acts, in verse 14, verse 22 says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Maybe this is why Saul writes later on in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And our temptation, my temptation, is to be surprised when this becomes a reality in our lives. Our temptation is to be swept off our feet when it happens. And that's why Peter writes to us in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then he says this, which doesn't make much sense to us in our mentality, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And so here in Acts 9, Saul immediately, after his conversion to Christ, he immediately begins to suffer for the name of Christ. Now there's something here in Acts chapter 9, in these verses, that, that uh, you don't see, and that is there's a lot of time that passes in the, quote, white spaces between these verses. Let me show you this. Look what it says in verse 23. Look in your Bibles, in your notes. Verse 23, it says, Now after many days were passed. Now we know from Paul's other writings that many days is almost three years, or approximately three years. Many days has passed. Three years. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, Paul tells us himself in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, he says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So here's the timeline. Three years passed before Saul met the first apostles. You say, well, what did he do during those three years in Arabia? Well, he spent time with Jesus, and he proclaimed the name of Jesus. In fact, Saul tells us that in the, in the remaining chapter of Galatians chapter 1. And then after three years, Saul finally got his first introduction to Peter. And then he left again for about 14 years. You say, well, how do you know that? Again, Saul explains to that, that to us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. You say, well, what happened during those 14 years? Well, we're not exactly sure what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically, though we get clues about it, from the rest of Paul's writings, his epistles in the New Testament, he had some visions in which God clarified his special calling for Saul's life. And he gave him some crucial insights about Jesus Christ. And we know that Saul was persecuted a lot. Here's what I want you to understand. Most of what happened, when you look at your 
Bibles in Acts chapter 9 here in this section of Scripture, most of what happened in the white spaces of your Bibles there took place right here, of what we read, this time period. We don't know uh, exactly when it happened, but we know some things took place of about 17 years of Paul's life. We see the white space. Perhaps even in your Bibles, you have some white space. We see the white space, and we tend to think that there's this break in the action where nothing is taking place. Nothing is happening. But make no mistake about it, God was still working in the white space in Saul's life. And by the way, all of us, all of us here have white space in our lives. Space in the storyline of our lives where there's a, a break in the action and it seems like nothing is happening. Where it seems like God has kind of dropped his pen and he's not writing the storyline of our lives anymore. Or he's hit the pause button. And our lives are now just at a standstill. But make no mistake about it, folks. God is still working in the white space in your life. Now, as I already mentioned, there's some question as to what happened exactly when in the white space in Saul's life. But here's what we do know. Is that there's approximately about 17 years here between the time that God chose Saul in Acts 9 and when he is officially sent out as a missionary in Acts chapter 13. So you got Acts 9 all the way to Acts 13. In fact, after Acts 9, what we're going to see in the weeks to come is that Saul literally fades out of the spotlight. He's nowhere to be found until we come to Acts chapter 13. And so it seems that nothing is happening in Saul's life. I'm sure perhaps he even said, because I know I would say, but God, why are things moving so slowly here? What is going on? You've given me this purpose to proclaim your name. What is up with this? And yet God was working in Saul's life. No, not necessarily in the way that Saul wanted, but in the way that Saul needed. Here's the point I want you to take away about Saul's life here. Notice the white space. Most of the white space in Saul's life was characterized by, you guessed it, suffering. Most of the white space in Saul's life was characterized by suffering. In fact, his whole life was characterized by suffering. Remember the Lord had said in Acts 9, 15 and 16, He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And suffer Saul did. Look what he writes, his own words, his own testimony, in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 27. He says, five times I received from the Jews, the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in great, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. You're almost afraid of asking Saul, how's things going, Saul? I mean, his autobiography could have been called My Worst Life Now. And yet, and yet, it was during this white space of suffering that God worked in Saul's life, preparing him to take the gospel to the Gentiles as the greatest missionary in Christianity. God was not absent in his life. God was working in his life. And yes, it involved suffering. What does all this mean for us? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? What should we learn from Saul's white space of suffering? Well, there's a lot of things, but let me highlight one thing. Don't waste your white space. Don't waste your white space. It's where God prepares you. It's where God purifies you. Now, I realize this truth is like sandpaper on our modern sentiments about suffering. Because let's be honest, all of us, we naturally try to avoid suffering at all costs. But suffering is one of God's primary training tools for preparing His people. Suffering doesn't necessarily mean something is wrong in your life. Let me say that again because that's what we naturally think. Suffering doesn't necessarily mean something is wrong in your life. In fact, it could be that everything is right in your life according to God's plans for your life. As A.W. Tozier writes, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And you may be thinking, well, I wish God didn't have plans to bless me so much then. But suffering, listen, suffering seems to be what God uses most often to reveal to us our ultimate dependence on Him and our ultimate hope in Him despite our circumstances. Jared Wilson, who is an author and writer. In fact, he now works at Midwestern Seminary, and he writes in his latest book, The Prodigal Church. Listen to his words. It's my conviction that God will not become your only hope until He becomes your only hope. And so God is good to remind us in our suffering that we are utterly dependent upon Him. And oftentimes, God must take something away to help us trust Him alone, even if it feels like we have received a death sentence. As one pastor put it, if dependence on God is the objective, then weakness is your advantage. Weakness is how you learn to operate in the power of God. And suffering helps you get in touch with your weakness. 
Suffering not only reminds us how utterly dependent we are upon God, but suffering is also essential in preparing us for ministry to people. Paul himself had to learn this. Paul writes later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You say, but how? How? What is the link between experiencing suffering and equipping us for ministry to people? David Paulson in his book, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, answers it this way, and I quote his words, When you've passed through your own fiery trials and found God to be true to what He says, you have real hope to offer. You have firsthand experience of both His sustaining grace and His purposeful design. He has kept you through pain. He has reshaped you more into His image. What you are experiencing from God, you can give away in increasing measure to others. You are learning both the tenderness and the clarity necessary to help sanctify another person's deepest distress. In other words, as we look to God, as we are dependent upon God, for comfort and hope in our suffering, He means to, to spur us on to comfort others with the same comfort that we have received from God Himself. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. God grants us mercy so that we can be merciful to others. God stands wholeheartedly with us in our suffering so that we will stand wholeheartedly with others who are suffering. Now, before we move on here, let me just highlight one mistake that we all tend to make in the midst of suffering. That is, we try to, we try to all, and it's just, the, it's, it's just it's so ingrained in us, we, we try to find and search and even desire so much some silver lining in it all. When all along, God just wants to prepare your heart more for Him. That's the silver lining in it. Remember the Lord said of Paul, for he is a chosen vessel of who? Of mine. God wants your heart to belong fully to Him. To love Him, to trust Him, and to follow Him. God calls you first and foremost to Himself, and then secondarily to a task or to a mission. That means what God is doing in you is just as significant as what God wants to do through you. And right now, as I look across this audience, God is preparing some of you. God is preparing some of you for himself through your white space of suffering. And it's painful. It's painful. As author and pastor Timothy Keller says, 
the most painful times of our lives are usually when God is taking out some cherished idol in our hearts. And why would God do that? Because he wants our hearts to belong fully to him. God uses suffering to bring you to the place where you can say with Paul what he said in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8, but whatever gain I had, in the, it may be the gain of this world, whatever gain I had in my place in this world, whatever it was, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Have you come to that place yet in your life where you can honestly say that? He goes on, and he writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, don't waste your white space. It's the place where God prepares you and purifies you as his chosen vessel. You are chosen by God for a purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And yes, it includes to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. When you're opposed, respond with boldness to keep proclaiming. And when you suffer, respond with hope in God to persevere. And then remember this. You're not alone. Hallelujah, right? You're not alone in it. You are not alone. Get this. The Lord is with you. The Holy Spirit dwells with you in you. And the church is here to strengthen you. I love how this section ends in verse 31. Look at it with me. After Saul left Jerusalem. In fact, it's somewhat ironic that Saul had to leave for this to even happen. In verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, they had some peace. And they were edified. In other words, they were built up. But notice the next phrase. In walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Let me leave you here with three applicational points. You're God's chosen vessel and you're not alone. Number one, first of all, walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that sense of awe that the Lord God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely powerful, and he may not be trifled with. The fear of the Lord is what the disciples felt when Jesus stilled the storm. It's the fear of the Lord is, is when Ananias and Sapphira had dropped dead, and the whole church was in awe of God. You do not make light of this God. You do not dally with Him or take His name in jest or treat Him as marginal or negligible in life. Why? Because our God is living. Our God is powerful. Our God is unstoppable. And He is infinitely holy. And Peter tells us, in response to that, that you humble yourself under His mighty hand. And here's the good news. If you will do that, if you will walk in the fear of the Lord, you don't have to fear anything else in this world. The 23rd Psalm, we all know it. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For Lord, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Later on in Psalm 118, verse 6, it says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
So walk in the fear of the Lord and keep proclaiming the name of the Lord. And if God wills it, suffer for the name of the Lord. Number two, walk in the comfort of the Spirit. This word comfort is a beautiful word. And it actually refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes alongside to help us. Emily Glotfelty, sitting in the back row, she just had, she blew her knee out playing soccer. Tore ACL, just had surgery last Tuesday. And she is using crutches now to get along. Those crutches are kind of her comfort of coming alongside and helping her. And she has some friends that are sitting back there helping her, comforting her. Folks, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus this morning, you have the ultimate comforter in the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. But not only that, walk in the strength of the church. One way God jogs our memory and preserves our joy in Him, especially in the midst of suffering, is through the strength of the church. And so for this reason, it's vital that we walk through suffering in community with other believers who can point us to Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal in the midst of suffering. Our eyes tend to go everywhere except Christ. And we need the strength of the church to redirect our hearts back to Jesus Christ, and back to the truth of His Word. We desperately need this. Think about it. Saul, in the story itself here, Saul would have never made it out alive, both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, without the help of other Christ followers. That's, I, I love that. In Damascus, they had to help him escape the city. And it's just the funniest picture in your mind that he, had, he was in a basket lowered through the city walls. And then in Jerusalem, believers had to send him away. Saul, go back home to Tarsus. We are saved by grace alone. But folks, thankfully, we don't have to follow Jesus Christ alone. God has given us the body of Christ, the family of God, to help us and encourage us and support us and even challenge us when it comes to proclaiming Jesus and, yes, suffering for Jesus. So walk in the strength of the church. You're chosen by God for a purpose, and you're not meant to fulfill that purpose alone. You have the Lord who is with you. You have the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And you are part of the family of God. Don't do life alone as you proclaim Jesus Christ and as you suffer for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace in saving us and choosing us for a purpose. But Father, we are needy, needy people. And we can't fulfill the purpose that you have for us apart from you and your power working in us and through us. And so Lord, help us when opposed to respond with boldness 
in proclaiming Jesus. And help us when we suffer to respond with hope in you to keep persevering. May we walk in the fear of you and in the comfort of the Spirit and in the strength of the church in order to let them hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The praise team's going to sing, and as they do, man, let me encourage you to respond. However God is leading in your life, right where you're seated, to go before God and to be honest with him and to seek his grace and his mercy and perhaps even his forgiveness.